Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Illegal immigrants. African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Amendment Thanks right. to the witch hunt. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan, 2020. Keep America great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. I'm Drew Sheldrick, and this week, as the Turkish invasion of northeast Syria and the impeachment investigation involving President Trump's dealings with Ukraine rattle Republicans, a potential trade agreement with China proved a welcome distraction for the White House. So, is an end really in sight for the US-China trade war, or is this an issue likely to backfire on the president heading into 2020? We'll find out from this week's guest in just a moment, but first, here's some of the latest in the long-running tit-for-tat trade war. We have breaking news out of Washington a few minutes ago. Uh, the president has announced that there's an interim trade deal with China. It covers currency, it covers technology transfer, it covers agricultural products. So this is a very good sign as far as, far as the U.S.-China trade talks are concerned. A big boost for Trump. This is his most important foreign policy trade agenda. And uh, we have an interim deal being announced right now in and Washington. And we've uh, come to a very substantial phase one deal. He keeps saying that this is less than meets the eye. Really, it's less than meets the ear because we haven't seen anything on paper. It's not that clear that it goes very far. It seems to be some commitments to make agriculture purchases as well. The president's announced three or four times in the past that the Chinese have already agreed to that. So I'd suggest the farmers have to go and immediately buy more land and get bigger tractors. Uh, they'll be available at John Deere and a lot of other great distributors. Dr. Stephen Kirchner is an economist and director of the United States Study Center's Trade and Investment Program, and he joins me now. Stephen, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. You wrote in the Australian Financial Review Monday that the Trump administration's tentative trade deal with Chinese negotiators is not worth the paper it's not printed on. Uh, why do you think that's the case? Well, this is the problem. There's no agreement until such time as it's put in writing and it has the signature of both parties uh, on it. And in fact, not only is there no written agreement, there wasn't even a joint statement laying out their common understanding of what they had agreed to. So it's quite likely that they're still a long way apart on uh, the detail of the issues that the uh, agreement prospectively uh, addresses. You mentioned in that same column that US farmers have basically been reduced to federal welfare recipients by this ongoing trade war. Is there anything for them in this new deal that you've seen? And, and have we seen much animosity from them towards the administration for uh, putting them in this position in the first place? Well, potentially there is something in it for them in as much as uh, the Trump administration has uh, obtained a commitment from China to increase purchases of agricultural goods by up to $50 billion. Right. Um, the problem here, of course, is that this depends on uh, China following through on that commitment. Uh, but more importantly, all this does is help offset the damage that the trade war has inflicted on the US agricultural sector. Uh, so China has slapped retaliatory tariffs on a lot of US ag exports, uh, including soybeans. Um, and the response of Chinese importers to those tariffs is basically to substitute out of U.S. supply uh, completely. Uh, so they now access soybeans from places like Brazil. Uh, and so there's been a dramatic decline in U.S. ag exports to, to China. 
Uh, so this would go some way to undoing the damage, but uh, of course that's a small consolation for US farmers. Um, in terms of their reaction to this, I think uh, there is some support for the idea that the US needs to stand up to China on trade. Uh, the problem is the way in which their Trump administration has gone about doing it. And are farmers the ones that are, that are there providing that support for this kind of action? Yeah, you do find uh, sentiment in favour of standing up to China, but the question farmers and everyone else will be asking will be, well, what exactly have we got from China uh, in exchange for uh, the trade war and all the, the damage that it's inflicted? And as yet, there's very little to show for it. Are there any positives that you can see coming out of this agreement beyond um, you know, the president perhaps drawing some attention away from the scandals currently engulfing the White House? Well, the most important thing from the point of view of the US economy is that it's forestalled what would have been a tariff increase that would have taken effect from today. Uh, so that uh, there's been a stay on that particular tariff increase and there's another scheduled for December and the administration has indicated that if there's an agreement, um, that tariff increase won't go ahead uh, either. So from the point of view of both the US economy and the Chinese economy, it's a good thing that the uh, further increases in tariffs have been delayed, uh, but it still leaves in place the tariffs that have been announced and implemented to date, uh, and they're the ones that are doing the damage. Uh, and this is a problem with the uh, whole trade agreement process is, and a key sticking point, which is the Trump administration wants to maintain the existing tariffs as a compliance and enforcement mechanism. So what the administration is saying to China is, we will keep these tariffs in place until such time as we deem you to be in compliance with any agreement. Uh, and so this doesn't leave a lot for, for China in a trade deal. Um, so the US is, isn't really offering China anything. Uh, it's asking for China to make significant changes uh, to its economy, but not offering to remove the tariffs until they're deemed to be in compliance. And so this has been the key sticking point in the negotiations. How likely is it that we are going to see a substantive signed agreement between the United States and China before the 2020 election, do you think? So there's an aspiration to uh, ink the uh, tentative uh, deal that was reached last week, uh, either at or before the APEC Leaders Summit in Chile in November. Uh, I think that will be an ambitious timetable, right. even for a, a modest agreement like this. Uh, I think it's important to understand that the sort of agreement that we're talking about is really, it's not a proper free trade agreement. It's effectively an executive memorandum of understanding. So and we know Trump a, doesn't like those particularly. <laughs> yeah, so it's, a, it's an agreement between two leaders to do things, yeah. but at their discretion they could uh, selectively repudiate uh, any or all of the, the provisions. Uh, if you're talking about a, a fully-fledged uh, free trade agreement uh, that's actually legislated through uh, the US Congress, uh, that would take many years to negotiate. Uh, so to put this in perspective, uh, the Australia-China Free Trade Agreement uh, took 10 years to negotiate right. and it was uh, far less uh, far-reaching than the sort of agreement the US wants to see with China. Um, so there's kind of a trade-off here between the substance of the agreement on the one hand and, and how long it takes to, to negotiate on the other. Right. The more substantive the agreement, then the longer it will take. Um, and so uh, I think you could certainly see a superficial um, executive uh, memorandum of understanding type deal done uh, this year um, and certainly before the presidential election. But I think the, 
the price of getting that done will be that it won't address a lot of the substantive issues and we'll see the uh, trade war continue after the election. You said China's interests are best served by pushing the worst of the trade war into the 2020 presidential election year uh, when Trump will have to you know, explain to the American people what he has to show for the damage he inflicted. Uh, do you think this could be a substantive vote-affecting issue next year for Americans? Yes, I think from China's point of view, they, they want to play for time. Yep. So they want to keep talking and delay the further imposition of tariffs, if not wind back uh, the existing ones. And the more they can push it into next year, then the pressure on uh, Trump increases to, uh, as I said in the op-ed, explain to the American people uh, what exactly he has uh, extracted from China in terms of concessions. Um, and if the answer to that is nothing, then the Democrats can rightly hammer uh, Donald Trump all the way to the election on trade. And so even to the extent that there's some support for uh, Donald Trump uh, standing up to China, there has to be something to show for it. Um, initiating a trade war and not obtaining any concessions from China, I think, is a, a bad outcome politically uh, for Donald Trump. Um, and it has to be said that if you look at US public opinion, uh, there's still a lot of support for both uh, international trade and trade agreements. Uh, the opinion poll data suggests that there isn't a populist uh, push. Uh, for protectionism. Um, Not like so, the TPP yeah. that we saw last election, do you Yeah, know? I mean, even on the TPP because this uh, extends to trade agreements as well. Right. So in many ways, these are tariffs without a constituency. It's been a top-down imposition on the part of Donald Trump who thinks that tariffs are good and, and trade is bad. Uh, it's true that when you ask people, if you frame the question in terms of either China uh, or Trump, then you start to get sort of partisan effects showing up. Right. And so then people split on partisan lines. Uh, but if you ask about trade uh, and trade agreements generally, uh, not only is there majority support, but that support has been increasing. So I think uh, Donald Trump has probably miscalculated where the US electorate uh, is at on, on these issues. And uh, regardless of perceptions of the effectiveness of, of what he's done, if it turns out that the US economy is turning down as a result of this, which is, I think is what's going to happen uh, next year. Right. Uh, then I think the electorate will be quite unforgiving, and uh, it will be—they'll be unforgiving regardless of uh, the actual cause. More broadly, how is the U.S. economy looking at the moment? I mean, Trump's presided over very good employment numbers during his first term, um, as well as some reasonable wages growth. Uh, are there any causes for concern for him, or is he likely to run on this kind of strong economic record up until the next election? Do you think? The labour market indicators are certainly strong. So the unemployment rate's the lowest it's been in 50 years. Yep. The participation rate's slowly recovering after the GFC. Um, but the labour market's a, a lagging indicator. It's typically the last to, to turn down. Okay. Um, US manufacturing and global manufacturing is basically entering recession, and that's largely due to the trade war. Uh, the irony here is that uh, Trump inherited a, a strong economy and in a massive own goal has inflicted a lot of damage upon it and, and that damage will get worse uh, next year because that's when the, the tariffs will really bite. Uh, a lot of stuff was sort of imported and stockpiled ahead of the tariffs, so you know, the full effect on consumers and, and businesses yet to be seen. Uh, so he's actually done a lot of damage to his own electoral prospects uh, through the way in which he's prosecuted the trade war. Um, and there were 
plenty of alternatives available to him in terms of how you could stand up to China on trade. So the administration could have stayed within the TPP, used that as a coalition to take on China at the WTO. Uh, so there are lots of ways you could have uh, approached these issues without inflicting damage on the US and, and world economy. President Trump announced new sanctions and tariff hikes against Turkey overnight for its invasion of northeastern Syria. Uh, putting aside for the moment that this was an operation he basically gave approval to just a week ago, can you see any potential impact on, on the US and world economies from this decision? So these measures are a little bit different to the uh, other tariffs in as much as the sanctions and the tariffs against Turkey are in pursuit of a foreign policy objective rather than a, yes. an economic uh, objective. Uh, usually Turkey doesn't need a lot of help from offshore in terms of screwing up its economy. <laughs> Usually they're, they're quite good at doing that themselves. Okay, okay. Um, but this will uh, uh, bite uh, Turkey uh, economically. It's steel, right? Steel is what they're... Uh, yep, yep, steel. And uh, they'll also be sanctioning uh, Turkish uh, officials and, and entities, okay. uh, which will put them under a lot of pressure. But, but the gauge for success there is does the economic coercion uh, get uh, Turkey to do what the United States wants it to do. Um, so that will be the, the test of the effectiveness of those measures. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it will. I think Turkey has effectively called Donald Trump's bluff uh, now that um, ISIS has been uh, removed from Syria. Turkey's in a position to, to step in uh, there. And so uh, I'm not sure that sanctions will ultimately be effective in uh, persuading Turkey to, to act in US interests. On a slightly different topic, your program released some research last week on rare earth development uh, for the US push to have Australia become a supplier to uh, divert reliance away from China. Firstly, can you explain to listeners who aren't familiar with rare earth production, why is this such a big issue for the United States at the moment? So this was a report written by uh, David Uran, a former uh, economics editor at The Australian. And uh, the rare earths issue uh, arises from the fact that uh, despite the name, uh, rare earths are not particularly rare. The right. problem with them is that the economics of extracting and processing them is very fraught. Um, and, and the prices uh, for rare earths are very volatile. Uh, and the economics of it has meant that uh, China has increasingly uh, dominated uh, the global uh, production of, of rare earths. And they're a critical component uh, in a lot of uh, electronics uh, including electronics that go into defence equipment. Right. And so there are concerns that China could use its um, its position in the uh, production of rare earths to exert uh, strategic influence. Uh, and there have been episodes in which China has, has tried to flex its muscles in this regard. So in 2010, it uh, imposed export controls on some of its rare earth uh, production uh, with a view to... Uh, reserving them for domestic uh, consumption, and this had the effect of uh, driving up rare earth uh, prices. Uh, those export controls are actually the subject of a WTO dispute that China lost, and so they've abandoned those those export controls. Um, but the issue for the US is, uh, what supplies do they have uh, globally other than from China? Uh, there's a little bit of production that happens in the United States, uh, a little bit of production that happens in Australia. Uh, Trump's interest in buying Greenland was actually partly motivated by rare earths because oh, really? there, there are reserves uh, there. Okay. Um, so the United States uh, and other uh, countries that 
consume uh, rare earths are worried about security of supply. Uh, China's also worried about security of supply because it's going to go from being a net producer and exporter to being a net importer in the next few years. Uh, so everyone's scrambling to uh, lock in uh, supply where they can. So they're using it for their defence tech as well, assumably? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. We saw US Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross uh, in Australia last week meeting with the government on this very topic. How likely is it, do you think, that uh, they'll get their wish and they'll see Australia step up as a, as a potential source of supply? So the Australian and US governments are coordinating efforts to develop uh, both uh, rare earth supplies uh, and processing uh, capability uh, in, in both countries uh, and in other parts of the world uh, as well. Uh, ironically, uh, I mean, the big issue for Australian producers has basically been access to finance. Okay. Uh, the, the usual sources of finance for mining and processing development are very reluctant to touch rare earths because of the volatility and lack of transparency around pricing. So it's very hard to you know, evaluate the economic viability of, of these projects. Uh, one of Japan's financing agencies has stepped in and provided very favourable financing to Linus, which is an Australian rare earths. Yep. Uh, and so the question for the Australian and US governments is to what extent they extend similar uh, finance to uh, Australian and other producers. Uh, interestingly, I think uh, David Duran has identified another important source of finance, which is ironically China. Okay. Uh, so China wants to invest in rare earths globally yep. because it recognises that it will eventually be a net importer. Uh, so it wants to see rare earth uh, supplies uh, developed globally. Uh, and I think there's a, a strong case for allowing China to participate in the, the financing and development of our, our own capability in this regard. How would America take that if Australia did go down that route? Well, I think the US is still well served in that you're still diversifying sources of supply. And if the supply is coming from Australia, then uh, if, it ever, if push ever came to shove and uh, China tried to uh, turn off the tap in terms of rare earth supplies, uh, then Australia would have leverage over any uh, Australian producer that had Chinese equity participation. Um, and you know, we can impose export controls ourselves if need be um, to secure uh, supplies. Um, so I think there's a very good case for allowing uh, China to participate in rare earth development uh, in Australia. Um, recognising that uh, ultimately this would contribute to diversity in sources of supply. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us this week. You're welcome. Thanks also this week to the Babamara Brass Band, Ketza and Kevin McLeod for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 